You're listening to Three Valleys Radio. The heart is a bloom Shoots up through the stony ground There's no room Welcome to our In Conversation programme featuring sporting heroes from the world of sport in general and past and present Yeovil players and supporters. And the reason that you had to care The traffic is stuck it's your chance to find out what makes these sported heroes tick. And also, we get a feel for their musical preferences. To take you out of this place Someone you can lend a hand In return for grace It's a beautiful day So sit back and enjoy as Three Valleys Radio brings you the best in local sport. Delighted to welcome to the show today journalist, uh, former jockey and TV presenter, none other than ITV Sports, Bruff Scott. Good afternoon, Bruff. Thanks for joining us on the show. Um, you're a man of many talents and um, obviously writing and horses play a huge part of your life. What would you say make, you know, plays the major part of your life, the horses or the writing? Well, I, I, I don't know interlinked really haven't it? it's I've sort of got myself defined by the by the horses and racing and everything else is really left out from that because otherwise you know I might have gone on a perfectly sort of ordinary path but I was just very lucky to get going and I mean what I did what did happen to me which is incredibly lucky I had a you know a, a sporting Obsession, which actually ended up as as as, as a, a activity I could continue on with for the rest of my life in different ways. Yeah, it also gave me a springboard into doing other things, which is lovely. But did you? Um, I mean, I, I remember you, you, you told me back along that uh, you started riding at a pretty a pretty young age. When did you start actually riding? Well, I'm not sure compared to. Compared to lots of people um, who became, particularly people who became uh, really proper jockeys, I didn't get going till pretty late on. I mean, I, I was born in '42, so I was brought up in the all over the place, and uh, there were no. I was in London really until about sort of uh, after the war, until about sort of 1948 or '50, where there weren't any horses. Oh, well, there were horses <laughs> pulling cars, I think. Yeah, yeah, uh, and then. I do remember riding once in Richmond Park, and and then there were some ponies when we actually moved out to the countryside. But it was all quite rough riding, not probably taught. But I I was keen on racing as a I thought I followed racing. I followed it as a sort of as a fan. You yeah. know, I can remember the Queen's horse, Queen's horses running, and I remember the sort of following the Grand National and the 
Charlton in the very early days of tourists and things like that. But that, so that, so I was always sort of keen on racing, and the idea of ride the point points, and then you know that all took off, and I then began riding proper races. So I, I was very lucky. So, so when you, you, you obviously you, you rode a few point to points to start with, and the, you know the bug must have have bitten you by then. Um, when did you? When would you say you actually sort of started? You know, wh- when was your first professional ride, shall we say? Well, my first, one, I didn't turn professional until I'd actually been riding in amateur for about four years. Right. I, um, I mean, my my background was that I was very keen on. I followed racing, and then when we got to having some rough ponies, I was sort of, all the much good at sort of pony clubbing. I like the idea of galloping faster than the next person. Yeah. So then, if you live in 1950s Worcestershire, you know, the big thing is to go to the local pointy point. Yeah. And, you know, you do that, but then the big thing really was that close by, there was a crest, it was Frenchy Nicholson, who was a, had been a champion jockey, but he was a trainer, but he also had a son who I got friendly with, David Nicholson. And he, Turned out to be a great trainer of jockeys, um, and really, if she could train me to ride a hundred, would have been a very good trainer of jockeys. But she did train people like Pat Henry and Tony Murray and Walter Swinburne and Paul Crock originally. And, yeah, and he was a great enthusiast. So, all, once they got sort of involved with going to the stables and things, my ambition was always to ride in in races under rules more than point to points because it was quite obvious that that was a much more high-powered thing. You know, point to points. If you were quite light, and which I was, yeah. You know, you you could you could ride and to be doing that and ride over hurdles, things like that. So that's that's how it happened. And then I, I you know, I was riding out on the Oxford, Oxford University and riding out there. And um, my first ever ride under rules was a little tiny mare. Which one that small? I suppose she was pretty good at War Hunt uh, races, which was. Both Tim Brookshaw and Paddy and Paddy uh, uh, um, uh, and Paddy not Paddy Brogdon were riding, and I mean you know people like that mm. all those years ago. Tim Maloney uh, and uh, I'd never been so fast in my life. Twice around for two miles, so like cow pats and all this stuff. <laughs> and I beat about two, and I thought it was absolutely amazing. Yeah. But then, you know, it sort of develops on a bit, and um, again, I was very lucky, basically, because I, my dad you know, bought a horse and then that one and sort of stuff, you know. So I had a, uh, no question, I had a big leg up in life. And, you know, um, I, I really feel all the time I've been the lucky one. I feel that quite strongly. Okay, we'll pop in there with the first of Bruff's musical choices, and this one is The King No Less and Blue Suede Shoes. Well, it's a one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and I go, can't go, but don't you step on my blue suede shoes. Well, you can do anything but take over my blue suede shoes. Well, you can knock me down, step in my face Slander my name all over the place Well, do anything that you want to do But not, uh, honey, lay off them shoes And don't you step on my blue suede shoes Well, you can do anything but take me over my blue suede shoes Let's go, cat! My house 
car Drink my liquor from an old fruit jar We're doing the thing that you wanna do But uh, uh, honey, lay off of my shoe And don't you step on my blue suede shoe Well, you can do anything But lay off of my blue suede shoe Rock it! For the money, for the show, for me to get ready now. Go, 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 but don't you step on my blue suede shoe. Well, you can do anything but the hell for my blue suede shoe. Well, it's blue, blue, blue suede shoes. Blue, blue, blue suede shoes. Yeah! Blue, blue, blue suede shoes, baby. Blue, blue, blue suede shoes. Well, you can do anything but the hell for my blue suede shoes. Elvis there and uh, Blue Suede Shoes. And you rode a, over a hundred winners uh, once you actually did uh, start riding professionally, as we say, or well, not just professionally, but I mean amateur and professional. Yes, it was. I mean, it, 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 in simple summary, it went far better than, than I could ever have hoped for because you know, I was just going to ride the point away. And then eventually we started riding the rules and my luck. And I was, you know, I was. Uh, again, lucky for going through education stream, Oxford University, really history. In, talking about the very early 60s, there were plenty of jobs. It could be the easiest or set fair, but I got so keen on riding. My last year at university, I had 65 rides in public. I you was know, sort of doing a history tutorial, rushing off to ride at Newbury, riding out every morning in British Network. But um, so then I, I didn't want to go and do a proper job. I, my father, took back between years. I went and was an amateur assistant trainer at Tim Forces. Again, the last year as an amateur I rode both Bob Davis and I had 200 rides each that year. I mean, we saw 25 winners or something. Um, and you couldn't go on having that number of rides unless you turn professional or you cut it down to just, just riding amateur rides. Really. The one thing I'm pleased about really was that I could have gone on being a sort of amateur rider riding the best horses in the amateur races which had been fine but it wouldn't have really been a proper test and I went I turned professional alongside Bob Davis and the truth is I really got found out I had a very good contract with Davis and things and I did you know, quite big winners but uh, I I wasn't really good enough tough enough or brave enough yeah. and um, I mean two years after we turned, Bob Davis was champion jockey and I was in hospital. Um, uh, and you know, I, I got going in, but they got in hospital again and became people sort of slightly poor old bruff. And I was very, very lucky that in many ways, I yeah, I got hurt at the right time. It was so obvious that it wasn't really working. And I got into television because, you know, I, I suddenly realised I, I completely wrecked any sort of game plan. I didn't, I didn't, I also got one of the other things right, and I didn't think I'd be any good at being a trainer, which is what the original idea would have been, because I hadn't got the right temperament of being a trainer. I'm yeah. a great admiration of trainers, but they need to be, they need to be like gardeners. They need to look at the same thing every day and adjust it gently and things like that. 
where I learned a little bit of a butterfly mind. So I think it was a good thing I didn't do that because I'd have messed up a lot of people's lives. <laughs> what uh, you, you you say you ended up in hospital a few times? Did you? I mean, how many bones did you break? Did you? Did you well, I did. But frankly, it's exaggerated really because I just I, I did the usual things that jockeys do. Um, uh, remember they even I broke um I didn't I didn't I didn't fracture my skull or anything. I didn't I didn't I didn't break my pelvis. I didn't break it I didn't break a thigh sort of things. Yeah. I broke an arm and a leg and things like that. But frankly, you know, if you were in a reasonable level of that contract sport, you break things. I mean footballers, lovely players, you break things. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and you've got to expect to break them. You have to and this is what we try to do with my time in jockey so to get people much more aware that you actually break things less and recover quicker yeah. if you get really all-round fitness. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I was really... I thought I was pretty fit, but I wasn't really looking back on it. We've been incredibly influenced by diet and things like that. You know, this is the days before Turkish bar. You didn't even have saunas like this. Yeah. But it was... Um, no, I had, I had a couple of things on my back. And the one thing I did do, see, I, I turned professional when I was already 23 or something. Yeah. I was a 23-year-old Oxford graduate. And and so I knew what I was in for. And I did say to myself that if I I would do it, you know, all I could, but I would, if I accumulated injuries on either my head or my back, I would stop because it was pretty obvious to me already that that's the thing you couldn't do. You couldn't start getting concussed a lot because he you would ruin your afterlife yeah. and you know, I also you know I'd been in the hospital with the back very very early on I sort of had a broken tiny bone in my neck about, about four or five the point point. and you know it's just, just quite the angles mm. but if you start getting your back in a problem you, you're not going to bounce well and I was in the hospital a second time with a cracked vertebrae and it was very obvious so that was being stupid to go on too far yeah. but again kids who start off you know, straight off at 15, 16, they never, that's their obsession, uh, and they don't have any other education. It's very tough because they get going, and there is this feeling, it has been much better than it was, but well, that's what I do, something else I can do. Yeah. And going on too long is the thing that, that is, is, is very difficult. And it actually comes to a stage where it's braver to stop. Yeah. Sort of going on, everyone sort of says, well, now he's going on. That you, uh, I've seen far too many jockeys go on, you know, a season, two seasons, four seasons too long. When they could get out, it's a bit of an embarrassment the first time they sort of say they're going to stop, but they stop. And then they, they use all the success and energy they had in riding to go into a new life. Because yeah. you're going to have to have a new life at some stage. Uh, and going on too long and all you know if you go on long, too long is you're, you're going to end up getting hurt mm. and that's what happens yeah. and you know it's been one of the wonderful things is that you know, both have gone on dangerously long both Barry Geraghty and um, AP and indeed Ruth Ward all got out uh, healthy yeah. and they compared to me they broke everything possible with a far worse than anything I did but they got out intact and then mentally intact and physically or pretty intact <laughs> but <laughs> you know they didn't they didn't go out in the wheelchair or they didn't go out um, you know what happens if they go on too long people then they get they get um, 
they get curdled in their sort of mind because it feel life against them. It's always going to be a tough life, but it's a much tougher life riding bad horses than just riding good ones. Yeah. You're riding good horses. You're looking forward, you know, to riding that good horse on Saturday or whatever it is. Whereas if all that happens is you're just trying to keep get a living and you've got a couple of rides tomorrow and you're accepting rides that other people are really turning down, which aren't much good and probably don't jump very well. You know, and you're mm. riding for trainers who doing things on the cheap. You know, it's, a, it's a very different deal if you're scuffling around at the, at the bottom end of it. Uh, everything is very different. But it's... Hearing your experiences, though, Bruff, it, it it makes the likes of Tony McCoy with with his his achievements all the more remarkable, really, when you hear of what you went well, they're, through. Well, they're, they're astonishing. I mean, again, and and I have to tell you that just as with footballers and things, I mean, they are much much better in many ways than the jockeys of my day. In that they're so much fitter, mm. they ride so much more often, so their craft is much more honed. I mean, people, the best of my day, were extraordinary riders and would have been in any generation. Fred Winter had the most extraordinary mind. Sam Mello was exceptionally bright. Yeah. Biddlecombe had enormous flair. But, I mean, they were having, you know, half as many rides. They weren't nearly as fit um, because these guys are doing so much. And also, they've learned so much about that. Mm. And they're there. The other thing, which is a huge help, is that the actual riding, um, because you have um, television and everything else, you can get, people can get the basics of riding, much, much more streamlined. There is a very strong argument that in jump racing in particular, people have got too much into streamlining and there's too much into um, uh, jockey ship coming in front of horsemanship. Mm. Of course, if you, if you lessen the fences, the need to handle the horse getting round becomes less. Yeah. And you can get to somewhere like France where basically the fences, um, A, they school them much better, but B, the fences aren't, you know, nowadays it's a bit easier in England, but um, jockeys ride there, a lot of them ride very much just on the next trap, just perched up the neck and the horse pops round. Mm. Um, it's a different way of schooling and things, but... Yeah, in our operation, Frankham and then Ruby, um, well, Frankham, Dunwoody, Ruby, Walsh. I mean, that's a, a, a hugely obvious level of horsemanship. Yeah. Balancing of a galloping thoroughbred, which, of course, is the, the real the greatest excitement in horse racing, really, is a, is a steeplechaser on song really doing it. I think a half a ton of <coughs> athletes traveling 35 miles an hour, jumping five foot high and 30 foot long is pretty awesome. Mm. Among, amongst others, it's a pretty awesome thought, really. So, so when... Tell you, pretty, 
pretty exciting to sit on. Time for another one of Bruff's musical choices, and this time we've got, uh, of course, the ex-Beatle George Harrison and My Sweet Lord.
George Harrison there and My Sweet Lord. So when did the uh, the move to television start then, Bruff? It started in 1970 because 1970 was the year of the World Cup uh, and I was, um, I'd broken my leg badly and in those days things were much, much slower to heal because they didn't, all the listeners will know, you put you in plaster and things like that. I did a kind of pins in it, mm. but it took ages to heal and I was on crutches and basically pretty immobile and I actually uh, it was pretty obvious to me that I was on borrowed time in the riding because I mean I've been riding for about eight years but I'm about my fourth year professional but um, this is the second time I've been up I laid up in the summer and you think well what is plan B people ask me what's your plan B yeah. I haven't really got that so I think about it uh, but because I told you I didn't think I'd be Trading. Well, anyway, in 1970, there was the um, World Cup in Mexico, which is a wonderful, wonderful World Cup. We had a wonderful team, better team in 66, really, but um, remember the, the fantastic Brazilian team as well. But we, um, I watched all of that, uh, and because I was, couldn't do anything else. But what happened in that World Cup is ITV had a great success with a thing called the panel. Mm-hmm. which had people like Malcolm Alf and Paddy Creeran and Derek Dubinis, and they spoke as footballers would about football as opposed to pundits talking about football. Yeah, yeah. And I also obviously watched all the television. Actually, it, was a, it was the summer of Dijinsky, 50 yeah. years ago, I think of that. And Dijinsky was the ultimate... I mean, when people think of sort of frank or important or enabled, Dijinsky was massive, much, much bigger than frank or or enable in importance in in the life of the nation because racing was more important and he had been an absolute star as a two-year-old he'd been anti-post for the derby and the guineas he was the ultimate expression of a brown piggot combination who were the most um uh charismatic uh trainer jockey partnership in racing history probably um and they had this horse called Nijinsky and he, he appeared for the first time in Britain had won all his races in Ireland won the two first stakes without coming off the bridle without picket hitting his own it came back and did the same thing in the 2000 guineas and then for the first time he had to give it one crack to win the derby it then won the King George won the Irish derby on the bridle and it won the King George by six lengths um, literally picket turning round it was absolutely awesome yeah. Anyway, I was watching that, and the horse racing coverage was fine, but it was very staid, and it was completely different from what ITV was doing. And I thought I could actually at least add what jockeys think of it, um, even though I had no broadcasting experience or anything. I'd never done any acting in school or anything like that. But anyway, I was, <laughs> when you're desperate, I you could do anything. <laughs> so I rang up Julian Wilson, who I knew, and suggested they give me a try, which they did. And they sort of liked what I did. Um, because I was, I mean, uh, uh, I had a perfectly good method. I, if you can't be good, be different. I knew nothing about broadcasting. I had, a, I had and have a not very melodic voice. Uh, and I tend, tend to speak too fast and inaudibly. But I've got a bit better at it and more organised, but did you work around your limitations? But I 
I could actually offer something that the others couldn't. You know, people didn't say why Hossie's got a white noseband or why Jockey's wearing gloves or why, um, you know, what it's like to ride on a one pound saddle. Yeah. And I could. So at least I got that out. And it, frankly, the thing about television, if you want to do it enough um, and you do it enough times, you will find a way of making yourself work. And yeah. so I was incredibly lucky that I did that. And ITV came in and offered me a contract for the next year. Um, if I actually offered me a contract to work in the summers and I could ride in the winters. So I rode that winter. Then I got hurt again. So it was pretty obvious that I was going to hospital. Um, I thought I'd get out of this hole. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was, yeah, that's, uh, that's 1971. Uh, I worked on Little Reef Derby 71, and I've worked on every Derby since, <laughs> in different capacities. And what was the, uh, the the ITV approach? Was it as as um, I was going to say laid back? But I mean, watching watching ITV racing now is is, is I think is a very good watch. It's uh, as you say, they still they still uh, do their little um, explaining points as to why why jockeys wear gloves, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it it's just all seems sort of quite casual and and you know kind of laid back. Was it similar to that, or was it more staid in those days? No. Well, well. There is ITV as a whole. I mean, again, it's it's one of those things. Over uh, younger readers, um, listeners will have to uh, take this as well. But um, BBC Grandstand, BBC was the absolute received wisdom. Remember, there's only there were only uh, two channels, uh, BBC and ITV, and then BBC Two came on. Yeah. Uh, uh, and. BBC Grandstand, it was always all pretty staid. And ITV came on and was much sort of brasher. And in particular on Saturday, they had a world of sport up against Grandstand. It didn't have very many... Um, it didn't have very many uh, uh, assets, so to speak, particular things, but it did have a much breezier approach. But the, but the racing approach, they didn't have a good race with, but they still had mostly sort of old colonels or people out of the army yeah. and who had a best ridden in sort of amateur races uh, and compared to the ITV people um, uh, on the on the, uh, uh, on the panel in the World Cup it's completely different hmm. so when I came in to the ITV team I was seen as a sort of rebel I mean it was sort of ludicrous when you think of, I, I was you know, I didn't wear a hat gosh I mean, literally. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I, I was, I didn't dress that casually, but I didn't, I didn't, I had a collar and tie, I suppose, but, you know, I had my hair really long, and just, I tried to treat people you know, in an ordinary, very friendly way. Yeah, yeah. And then, the the thing was, that was the major man, Andrew Franklin, who was the sort of youngest part of it, a world of sport team, but he was mad on racing. So he, but he was a very, very bright chap. But he was always behind the scenes. So we had a sort of behind the scenes number going to try and get racing to be um, more open. And I mean, in those days, it was ludicrous. BBC accepted it. We didn't have there was BBC did virtually no betting. And Sullivan had to stop and let hear the 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 uh, SP being announced. Yeah. But we had already people reading out the odds. 
but I mean, it was all very, very stiff and very, very... I mean, they met at 10.30 to just sit alone, and then we all went off to the pub. <laughs> the TV teams were just sort of having a nice day out, just to great extent. And I was quite pushy, and I wanted it to be friendly. I wanted it to be professional. Mm. And then by the time we got... Um, I came as anchor man, and I working with Andrew Franklin very much behind the scenes. And then, in a bit of luck, in whatever it was, from 1980, the, the, the um, ITV was always getting more and more iffy about keeping uh, racing across the network. And it, it was pulling out at the same time as Channel 4 was coming on, who wanted programs that had some sort of a nationwide audience. Well, we had a small audience, but a huge one for, for ITV stands, but a huge one for Channel 4. So we went to Channel 4, and there we could actually very much create a racing broadcast in our own sort of way, which we did. We built up over the years, and you know, famously we introduced McCurry. But you know, we, did, we also introduced, you know, John Frankham and John Oaksey as a sort of counterpoint, and Jim McGraw. And, you know, we, we were a balanced team. Mm. And it was great fun to be the anchor of it because, it, you know, I was trying to spread it around and keep people involved and try and do that thing of making it informed but accessible. Because if you get it too informed, you know, you're, if you're all experts or, or sometimes if you're trying to be experts, automatically exclude the ordinary person watching because they're not experts. Yeah. On the other hand, if you if you patronise people, you, you sort of make them talk down to them, that's very irritating. I mean, a really good phrase I was given very early on was that never overestimate your audience's knowledge mm. or underestimate their intelligence. I think that's a, yeah. a really nice thing to do. You don't ever patronise people, but you do don't assume they know things. Mm. I don't like it when people go to have too many nicknames and things. You need to just drop, you know, people don't necessarily know this, don't necessarily know that. People sort of say, well, you know, he, he's a nice horse, but you know, he, he did well, he, uh, I think he might go for the, for the John Smith. Well, I mean, you need to do a bit more than that for, uh, for the ordinary viewer. Um, they don't know what the John Smith is, being John Smith's spot. <laughs> and you tend to just think, I mean, I think the great thing about broadcasting and same as writing is think of the viewer, think of the reader. You're, you're talking to them. You're not talking to your fellow commentators or yeah. your fellow editors. You're talking to the viewer. Uh, and that's, that's actually very rewarding because it's nice to be thinking you're talking to them other people are sharing your enthusiasm and a bit of knowledge with, with other people I, I really like that it's a nice thing to do more music now and this time we've got the power of love from Celine Dion send the more whispers in the morning of love and sleep and tight I'm rolling by like thunder now As I look in your eyes I hold on to your body I 
Celine Dion there and the power of love. But of course, you didn't have a Francesca Cumani on in those days, did you? No, my, I might tell you, we tried really hard. I mean, I got really quite cross about it because I remember saying, look, we, we're doing, we're doing this, it's like 85 programmes a year. Yeah. Like two, three-hour programmes. The only women who coming on are <laughs> Norma McCauley, who um, both Norma died last week, who were splendid ladies, but they were, you know, no one would call them. Um, uh, fashion horses, uh, <laughs> or but, you know, there was there was no the idea that we're beginning to get life has changed so many ways, much for the better. Uh, I mean, I can remember when Angela Rippon first read the news, people got really so silly about it. Who was not exciting? It's a woman reading the news and they sort of had fantasies about Angela Rippon. Mm. But you know, we did to not have women on a broadcast was absurd. Um, but it was very difficult because there the weren't very obvious people qualified. We, 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 we um, actually had sort of screen tests for virtually everyone under the age of 70, basically, you know. And a lot of them have never had any, had any concept of what you need to do for broadcasting. And mm. uh, um, eventually, Leslie Graham came did a very good job. She'd been a solicitor. So she was, she could talk, talk so she was married to a trainer, and, and she, she did well, but didn't quite click. Then, of course, Claire Balding came through on BBC, who was magically good. Mm. But you know, the, the, the fact is that racing as a whole is still very male-dominated. Um, uh, you can say it's slightly better than the spectators, but you go to the press room and races, very few, few um, female writers, uh, and and that and there aren't that many more coming through. And while there have been, there are some very very good uh, women jockeys. Uh, there's a slightly other other reasons, but I mean, there's very few who are, are, are actually made it. And Holly Doyle might be champion jockeys, so I'd say, um, uh, she, but she's. I mean, it's only her and one other in the top fifty. And Tito in, in in Ireland, especially Blackmore, who could easily be champion jockey, and, and both of them could easily ride for catching winners. But the next one down, it's about thirty fourth or something. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there aren't, you know, it's it's one of those things that for the jockeys, it's slightly obviously it's a very physical thing, and whatever anybody says, it is it's. It's tougher for women to do it. That's why it's so huge and successful with the ones who do it. There's some very, very good jockeys. Um, but as regards sort of TV and things, um, they, it's better. And indeed, they seem to be women are being accepted much, much more uh, as um, TV uh, broadcasters than they have in the press room. But like the press room is getting. Uh, decimated by the change in, in sort of reading patterns and things like that anyway. Do you not but, think uh, though with the... You know, the... I think it's so important that racing should be diverse, should be attractive to, to women as well as men and people from all across the country. Do you not think though, Ruff, with the, the, the way that, that women jockeys are becoming much more a successful and there seems to be a, uh, you know an ever-increasing number, that that's going to change from the point of view of the journalism side of it? Well, you see, 
say that, but uh, it hasn't been. Sue Montgomery was a leading journalist years back in Independent, and there's never been anyone writing in the same category as her since. Um, uh, we do have some, besides Francesca, very able uh, women broadcasters. So, I mean, the fact is, uh, the most obvious thing of all, there isn't a single um, uh, race course commentator. It'll run 56 courses in Britain, is it, and that, uh, and there isn't a single female race course commentator. Mm, mm. The odd announcements are made by women uh, announcers, but none. I mean, we now get, and, you know, why not? Well, women's voices are more high-pitched, but women, there's women football commentators, women cricket commentators, quite a lot now. Yeah. And in many ways, if a voice calling the race was female, yeah. that would change the feel of it. But, but I, mean, I remember writing something saying, why aren't the women when the first woman did a uh, football match, um, you know, which is 25 years ago, something saying it's by time a woman commentator. Funnily enough, there was a competition put on by uh, at the races or racing TV, um, which is actually won by, by Haley Moore, her own sister, mm. who, for a female commentator. Mm. But while she went on, and she's a highly successful and able presenter, she doesn't, as far as I know, call the races much. Um, and certainly, I don't know, don't you have, I don't think a woman has called the races in Britain. Um, uh, and you have to say, why not? And of course, the fact is that people will really say, oh, I don't know about that. Because hmm. they always do. But I then... might tell you, I wasn't actually around, but, I wasn't. <laughs> um, but in 1954, which is pretty late in the day, it was 1954 they had the first course commentary uh, at the races in Britain when they had it in America for ages uh, and people complained they said oh no no we don't want someone telling you what's happening we want to watch it can you imagine that I mean there wasn't a course commentary there weren't any stalls from the 60s think about it you know, it's, uh, we've been we've been terribly behind in some things in horse racing uh, we, we, we tend to cherish our history almost too much and, and not think of the future enough I think but don't you think us men are set in our ways and you know I mean uh, I expect I'll get criticised for being uh you know male chauvinist but uh, you know I listen to women uh I'm all for women commentating on women's football or women commentating for women's cricket but women commentating for men's cricket and men's football to me uh, I don't know. I'm so set in my ways. I don't. I don't particularly like it. Well, again, I think there is a bit of age about that. I and mean, don't forget that people were horrified when women read the news. Yeah. I mean, goodness gracious, um, <laughs> they're much bigger issue. I mean, Roman Catholics still don't have women priests. And I remember when we first had Church of England had women priests. My old father-in-law thinking it was very uncomfortable. And yet we had a woman queen, a woman prime minister, we had women doctors, we had women you know, judges and things. Um, yet we couldn't have a woman, we couldn't have a woman priest. Mm. Why on earth not? Mm. Um, I, I think that I think it's about expertise. Uh, um, I mean, a woman pundit to make sure she knows her stuff. But if a 
commentator. No, the actual voice commentators. That's about your know, ability to condense thoughts and describe what you're seeing. Mm. And there's no reason why a woman shouldn't be as good, if not better. Yeah, no, I mean, you're right. Just as, you know, as, just as writing about it. Mm. But the fact is, um, again, for whatever reason, probably plenty of reasons, maybe some because it's already so male dominant, but women don't seem to want to do it. The odd thing about the writing is that more women than ever set out as disabled staff and would be jockeys. But still, while lots, lots more rides or successes, as I say, and it's, it gets slightly, just the arguments can get slightly silly and people get very cross and be very rude to me and I've actually queried it and say, look, actually, it is very tough for women jockeys because that's why you look at the list only two in the top 50. You'll get one or two exceptional people who, who can crack through and there's two reasons why why it's a very difficult thing to break through. One is one is I think a fair degree of prejudice um, still, that people sort of still preferring to um, put a male jockey when it's successful. And the second one which is a bit silly and people can't discuss it is there is an element in being a, in the jockey's skill set, which is strength. You know, there's an element of that. Uh, and the, the fact is, the female body isn't as strong as the man's body. Mm. The same, same weight if they're healthy. Obviously, some, quite a lot of jockeys are too dehydrated to be as strong as they should be. And Holly Doyle, in particular, is exceptionally strong. And, of course, it's, it's not dehydrated at all. She's a very short, strong lady. Yeah. Uh, and some work very, very hard in the gym. But I mean, the fact is, women are as strong as men, and you know, say it again, don't get cross about it, because if they wear, they'd be in the same same weightlifting class in the, in the Olympics. <laughs> yeah. they'd, be, you know, they'd be in the same boxing class. They'd be, you know, it's, it's, it's silly that the, the, the female frame isn't as strong. But the female intuition uh, and uh, reacts and things like that. There's no reason why that isn't as good or not better. It could be pilots and goodness knows what. And most of race riding is piloting. Yeah. But there is an element about it which is which is actually strength. And there's moments, but not in every ride at all, um, when being that bit stronger is a is a is a help. But of mm. course, many many more races are lost by bad decisions than they ever are won by extra strength. Um, and it's making the right decisions uh, and not messing the horses up which is the, is the fascinating thing about race riding and of course you you can't know what decisions were made because the jockey's not going to tell you mm-hmm. and trying to work out whether he actually rode it badly or the horse wasn't good enough it's one of the, the dilemmas for anybody who Time for some more music now, and this one is a particularly poignant choice. It's uh, Vera Lynn, of course, who sadly passed away recently, and we'll meet again. We'll meet again, don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again. Some sunny day Keep 
just like you always do till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away so will you please say hello to the folks that i know tell them i won't be long they'll be happy to know that as you saw me go i was singing this song we meet again don't know where don't know when but i know we'll meet again some sunny day great dame vera lynn there and we'll meet again i'm just in the middle of reading ruby walsh's book and it's quite interesting you know he was saying in there that race riding in ireland is, is totally different to race riding in england in the context that uh, in ireland they they um i can't remember which way it went around now one country they well, expect in, in, you to in, rush in on england, they, when you first came to england you found they went they went as much too fast yeah that's right uh, because he you can run a race in the best performance is to, is to try and keep your speed as as level as possible so going off in great bursts of speed or, or going very slowly isn't as good as going at a regular pace yeah yeah uh, and people in England didn't want to let him because you actually go too fast you just want to drop out hmm uh, but uh, the problem is of course And the horse then becomes uncompetitive. That, that, that's, that's the additional problem you've got. I mean, it was just human athletics. You, you 100% listen to your body rhythm and your own timings and say, I'm going to keep doing these 57 lap, second laps, or whatever it is, um, and that will give them the ultimate time. Yeah. Um, but we, 
horse racing, um, if a horse gets detached, sometimes he, you know, he won't, he won't, he won't give it to you. And you can, as we all know, not not all horses um, will give you everything all the time. Uh, uh, in fact, he won't will give you everything all the time. Uh, and in a way, you don't want them to give you everything because they give them, they give you everything. Tend not to give it again in a hurry. Uh, yeah. When a horse has a hard race, you want to be very, uh, unless he's very, very tough, or she is. If you come back too quickly, uh, they, they absolutely don't run. You know, Grundy Bussy, uh, 1975. So, uh, I remember when Grundy ran the next time in the at York, a month after he won King George. Everyone said he was well, well, and worse and stuff. He ran absolutely terrible. Because he had the, you know, he had the orange squeeze right out in the amazing duel. You know, if it's a really hard duel, usually it means a scar a bit. Not careful. Yeah. Um, Ralph, go, go, changing the subject slightly, um, the Racing Post and, and Sheikh Mohammed, tell me, how, how did that come about? Well, it came about through circumstances of the time, which was about 85, when the, the print business in Britain was going through a sort of traumatic change, the whole whopping thing, and, and, and unions were, uh, I mean, there's faults on all sides, but in particular, we were miles behind what was happening in other countries. We had these closed shops, and, and they're completely ridiculous. You went to America, um, you, 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 they already had computers into which they typed their stories, which were sent to the office, which you know then set up automatically and did it. In Britain, we were still, when I was with the Sunday Times, ringing up, and there was someone take to take the copy. Someone was taking it down. They was handed to someone else, who would rearrange it, and then someone else who then put it on the stone. Yeah. And that would take about it took it a chain of about four different sets of people when you could do it in one, mm. two. And anyway, in that number, there were two people who remember Murdoch, but there was also Robert Maxwell. And he owned the Mirror, and a much other, he owned the Sporting Life. Yeah. So the main racing paper, Sporting Chronicle, was just closed. And the Sporting Life was having strikes quite regularly and Maxwell was threatening to close it down and it looked very likely he might close it down. And so I had actually with some other people tried to warn people and said, look, we need to have some sort of plan B if Maxwell closes for you and what happens? Otherwise we'll just be a bookmaker's sort of sheet. Yeah. Uh, and we did actually we looking into it. At the same time, Shame having to come on the scene and I was, I didn't, I mean, I knew these sort of people a bit, but I mean, I was quite involved in TV and uh, sort of anchor for ITV Channel 4 and, and, and doing the Sunday Times and things. But I, I sort of interviewed him and understood that he had sort of lunch with him and he told me his sort of ambitions. And I said, well, if I could ever help, I wasn't on his payroll. I think I said, uh, help, of course. And he's, his people kept coming to me with uh, sort of publishing projects, which they said, you know, these people um, would like him to invest, do this good idea. 
and about three of them came and they were absolutely bad ideas and I told them so and, I said, and then there was one that was actually well, a good idea which was a pacemaker and so they said well um, I thought would suit them as a magazine, monthly magazine blood stock mainly and things like that and uh, I um, uh, uh, they said would I go out and tell Shakespeare and I said well, I'm sure they would see it and they flew me out to see him and I say it was a good idea and when I went with him, he said, no, no, I don't want, we don't want to do it because Mr. Sanks's magazine, it would be like buying someone else's wife. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, I did, I'd rather complain to him, which of course people sort of the hangers on were horrified, but I said, well, it's, you know, no, no, it's, it was sitting well anyway. But he said, couldn't we, um, we would like to support for something we could do. And I said, well, the thing you could do is back a new daily paper and this other thing goes down. Uh, he said, how would that work? And I said, well, uh, sort of looking at some things, but um, I think it might be easy to do. I then had lunch with his people and complained bitterly about being dragged out to this thing. They said, they'll never change his mind. He likes that other idea. And I said, oh, no, because you, know, you can't really back a daily paper because it's all about betting as well as a dream. Anyway, they made me go back that evening to see him. And he said, what would happen? They'll give you an elaborate answer, but <laughs> The advent it was of the, fun. the website. I, mean, again, I didn't intend to do it. It wasn't a plan of mine at all. No. So uh, I also I was main anchor for Channel Four, and I was doing it. So I couldn't really. I did. I wasn't actually editor. I was editorial director, and it was actually so sort of slightly wrong. I should have either been full on or, or not really. And I, I um, it was difficult to do. We got it sorted by the end, but trying to fit my other things in and also I had four children so it was quite difficult yeah and you're not involved any longer no not at all except for the books the books uh, division I've been involved in the books along the way yeah and uh, since we did we did both with George Duffield so I've been sort of a main advisor on that and funny enough I've written they published two books of three four books of mine um, mm. which have worked quite well 
and I'm just doing one this winter, this summer, um, with a guy uh, who uh, called Stevie Fisher, who was a farrier, who uh, was 50. Uh, he was 50 this May, and in August, it will be six years uh, since he had a stroke, uh, and since then, he's been only able to communicate by his left eyelid, and he can't move at all. Mm-hmm. And yet, he has written via eye gaze and blinking with his left eyelid, he's written 33,000 words, basically his own story. I've, I've sort of helped with it a bit, but he's written the main stories. And they're very funny stories that will be coming out this Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's, that's those sort of things are very good fun to be involved in. Yeah. And talk about the sort of, talk about the strength of the human spirit. And there is this chap you know, completely trapped. I mean, you know, absolutely trapped with locked-in syndrome. Mm. And yet he's writing these funny stories about how he backed to uh, 166 to 1 winners at Royal Ascot and when the second one won, he ran, he was staying in a villa in Portugal. He ran out screaming and jumped in the pool for the clothes. But, um, no, it's been interesting. I, I, I enjoy putting books together. It's, yeah. It's fun. And now for Brush's final musical choice, it's Tina Turner and Simply the Best.
Uh, Tina Turner there and Simply the Best. Well, look, we're getting a little bit uh, tight for time, so let, let, let's finish off with um, uh, one-word answers. But um, over the years, I mean, you must have seen and come across hundreds of horses. What's the best jump horse you've ever come across? Arkle, um, without any question. But all you can do with these sort of comparisons is what were they like ahead of their, their peers? I mean, to say Arkle would be actually better than Corte Star... Okay. Um, so, what about the best flat horse? And I, I presume you're going to say Nijinsky. Uh, yes. I mean, the thing about flat horses, of course, is that they different distances, um, uh, just as in jump horses, but so gold cup is the sort of main thing for that flat. But Nijinsky, uh, when he won the King George, Nijinsky's summer, the summer of Nijinsky, he was he was much the best horse around. It's much better than the four-year-olds and five-year-olds. It's much, much better than the three-year-olds. Mm. You know, and, and what's more, he did it mile to mile and three quarters, mile and a half. Um, Frankel was absolutely amazing. But you have to remember, as a, as a three-year-old, he, he was stunning, but he just beat up the same bunch of milers. No. Uh, and, I mean, as a three-year-old, seeing the start of his career as a three-year-old was, was superior to it. To um, uh, Frankel's, because Cedar Stars, he may not have won the King, the, 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 um, uh, he may not have won the Guineas uh, uh, as spectacular as Frankel or anything like, but he went straight to the Derby. Well, Frankel never got near, didn't you? Go to Marla Cautious mm. as a three year old. Um, and then, then, you know, Cedar Stars was in there, you know, running in, 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 in one of the Judmonts, the Irish Champion Stakes. And then ended in the arc, you know, which is very, very competitive races. Yeah, yeah. And came up, came up, good and beat them. You know, he, he was a he was a terrific horse. He just fell there. People were think good he was because he was he was in Ireland and he had a sort of quiet trainer, and he didn't appear. He never appeared as a two-year-old. Um, you know, we didn't. He great. He started as six to one or ten to one. The guineas six to one. Um, National Hunt trainer? Uh, oh, best trainer I either thought was Nicholas in a brand. Because again, for the reasons I said before, that you can only be in your time. And he he only had a few targets he could go for. Uh, and he came over and he won the, he won the champion hurdle, the Grand National and the uh, Gold Cup each of them separately three years running. Mm. Now, to come from what was quite a small Tipperary train place in the 50s and 60s, that's absolutely astonishing. He then switched to the flat and won, it, won all the classics in, you know, in the Arc de Triomphe. Well, I mean, no one's done that. No. No one, and no one ever will. No. Uh, but, I mean, 
that was of his time. There's some amazing trainers now, no doubt that Fab is an extraordinary trainer. Uh, Michael Stipe is an absolutely brilliant trainer. John Gosden now is, is, is a master trainer. Uh, no question, you know, what Mark Johnson has done in the numbers and efficiency and attitude of horses. I mean, horses that run 16 times a season and get better with it. That's a completely, you know, a huge thing to be able to do. Mm. And sort of organisations of of welfare to organise all that. And finally, best jockey? Best jockey on the flat as a sort of presence unquestionably picket. Some exceptional skill in Fallon at his best was a huge talent, and a unique talent. And of course, um, Kitori is unique in skill. His father was a Japanese, his mother was a Japanese artist. Uh, Ryan Moore is completely understated. I mean, he's not been close to the world's best jockey twice for nothing. He's taking him anywhere. He's very, very good. And what's exciting is someone like Hugh Murphy, very good coming through. And the kid, young Kevin, is very promising. Um, uh, but, you know, it's just, in many ways, people should get better because the bar should always be higher. Trainers know so much more. I mean, certainly backup is so much superior than what it was. And, you know, people's knowledge of the training systems. I mean, when I was starting off, the idea of all weather was a, you know, you had, you know, you, Harrow the field and go up the plough. That, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that, that literally was the best you could do. Yeah. Um, and all that and uphill canter. We had these ridiculously long canters. And uphill spinning up uphill canters, getting all that. Horses are much much fitter. Mm. Martin Piper broke the mold, but so did so did the trainers. Uh, people like Guy Harwood. They began to change the the way people handle horses and what you can do is so much superior. What what isn't superior is, is the far less people around who have handling horses in their back, background, so it's, it's difficult. Um, it, it's dangerous that you don't get enough. Um, the actual attention people pay horses is less, but um, again, people are making efforts to try and teach that uh, because they know you need it. Mm. And it's so good treating horses and machines. They need to be We mentioned Frankel. We couldn't really finish an interview with you without mentioning Henry Cecil. Um, you had a lot to do with Henry Cecil over the years. Uh, sum up what sort of a man he was. Well, I mean, again, uh, I thought about Michael Stout, I mean, flat race trainers. I mean, Henry Cecil was uniquely gifted. His record was absolutely astonishing. Uh, and and uh, because he was, he was gifted in that he... he, he I talked about a gardener. He, he was a gardener. I mean, he loved, you know, he was a very good gardener, roses and things. And he could, the other trainer would say, he, he could sort of, a lot of trainers talk about sort of crispy, sort of go all phase. And I'm not sure she's just ready yet, you know, you just have to wait with her. Uh, and he would he would get it right. Uh, and I did that book on him. It was very interesting talking to the, because I did a 
but I remember him coming through at the very beginning. I knew all the lads and things, and talking to them of how, and of course it was an, he, 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 he had this brilliant, uh, all trainers have to have a sort of balance when it gets started. Uh, he had this brilliant balance of his, he was the, you could say the grand way visionary, but um, he, he, he brings his own touch to it. But his wife, Julie Cecil, was the daughter of Noel Merlis, who was a fantastic, Julie Merlis, a fantastic um, uh, trainer in his own right. And she was a very good rider, and she would ride out and lead the, the canters, the very fast canters too, uh, at Newmarket. And then he had his counterpoint, Henry, is his head lab was a chap called Paddy Rudkin, who was a broken nose boxer, and he, he was he was splendid, Paddy, and he, I'm very fond of him. He was tough, so if, it, if Henry was sort of, could be, he could afford to be soft because he had, you know, this little sergeant major behind him. But the balance when they got it when it got going was fantastic. And Henry, Henry's own way was very ambitious, but he could he could he could read it, read horses right in the end. But it's flat horses in a ticket, and you couldn't read them right because you actually many many more horses are. Uh, a, a trainer really. The truth is that from the flat trainer, you can't you can't make a horse go any quicker. What you can do is mess it up, and and I almost say most horses get messed up because you've got a very short window with them, just two and three year olds. They just read it wrong. You run them in the wrong race. You run them too soon. You wait too long. You've got to read them right. Henry Cecil. Came in as a good time in a way because he had these traditional owners, and he he had a very very tough regime. Which, which, you know, when he's his peak, he was running at sort of thirty five percent strike rate because he wasn't running horses unless he was pretty sure they could could have to win. He wouldn't you know he wouldn't be scratching around trying to find a winner and seller with him. You know, he, he couldn't do that. And then when when he got to the absolute peak of it, when when Steve Crawford came over, and that was a a golden time, and particularly I was very lucky to be in television then, with Henry with his sort of gentleness and fairly asking questions back to the press. And I see Corden would come on in that Kentucky voice and uh, you know, completely open, say as it was. And, and you know, the sort of days of Flip Anchor and um, uh, Reference Point and Oh So Sharp, and we, they, were, they were wonderful, wonderful days. I was very, very lucky to be sort of in a reasonably pole position then. How many horses did uh, Cecil have in his yard on average? Well, he'd have, I mean, he'd have, again, plenty of horses for then. He'd have the best part of 1,800 horses. Definitely, O'Brien never had more than about 50. Hmm. 40, 50 horses. Extraordinary. These trainers now have 200. Well, I was going to say, when you yeah. compare uh, Gosden, he's got more than that, hasn't he? I mean... Yes. Yeah. Well, they're, they are what they're what they're like. The top trainers, the top trainers, there were the schools, uh, and the, the people are going through the classes, uh, and you, the different people involved, different masters, and the, the top trainer is a headmaster. You know, who's taking the final decisions, but he's getting feedback from the different teachers. The teachers are the stable lads, really, mostly. Stable staff, people riding, the people in the box, so what's it like? And you're being fed in information by everybody, which fits a pattern. 
of course, you're doing... You're, you're, it's, it's an infinitely um, varied way of different sort of strata to it, but you're actually doing something quite simple. You're preparing a genetically programmed athlete to run in races. That's what it does. Um, you're not trying to find out trying to find out which distance it goes and how it needs to be ridden. You're not trying to find out whether it's actually what the chemistry or maths or when it's a whether it's a ball player or a violinist with a school you know, a school boys and girls. You're, you're, you're dealing with athletes straight away, which is the excitement of it. You've got all these things that come into the yearning sales, and of course, you, know, you look at O'Brien. You have all these horses all bred to win the Derby. They still don't know which one will win the Derby when they when they start. That's why they have about ten runners each time. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, one more last question, which I've just met, remembered I meant to ask you earlier, Galileo. Why do you think Galileo has proved to be such a successful stallion? Uh, because he was, um, he was well. First of all, because he was extremely um, uh, good, able, uh, healthy runner, had very, very good bloodlines. Um, I mean, he, he was a very good horse. Awesome win the Derby and you know, uh, enjoy. He, 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 I remember getting beaten by a fantastic rider of a mile and a quarter. I mean, he was a very good horse, but he wasn't, I mean, his career wasn't as good as Cedar Sars, for instance. Mm. Think about it. Um, uh, uh, he, wasn't, he didn't run as a two-year-old until late, very late on. Um, so he didn't have a sort of varied a career, and all that, but he, he, he clearly, what nobody ever knows, is he has passed on his good qualities didn't think it had many bags, passed on his good qualities. So, so an awful lot of the horses actually are A, very sound and everything else, but they're also keen to run. They're tough, you know, and they, and they, they, and they go different distances. You know, um, you, you have horses who get miles three quarters and mile or whatever. It's, it's, a, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And of course, just to be clear, he became the lead player of Mixing <laughs> biggest orchestra I mean Coolmore operation um, you know it, it, it had had some as well and then he became the replacement yeah. um, uh, and they'd already made Sadler's Wells into an absolutely amazing stallion and I remember going riding out there and there was a whole mass of three-year-old colts so many of them by Sadler's Wells all looking a bit the same sort of compact with a quite dark bay with a white star you know. well that's passed on a lot of Galileos you know um, mm. as you know I mean there were many whether four or five this year in the Derby alone mm. um, but no no one knows why some stallions pass on their brilliance and others don't you know it's, it's a it causes pedigrees as well but I mean for instance Mill big enough here I've beaten Mill Reef um, Millie had a better pedigree, and Millie was a much, much better stallion than Billy the Chair Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it's, um, but no, it, it, it's, it's, he's very well handled, Galileo, and he was a, he was a very good horse. Uh, and um, uh, you can get, you have to talk to breeding experts, but they'll start rattling off all sorts of um, <laughs> four by three in breeding smiths out the rest of it. But it's, it's, uh, the fact is, he, He's, he's a he's a stallion who reproduces his talents. 
No, true enough. I've true done enough, my bro. best with my four are very nice children. Probably a lot nicer than better than me. Well, I'd like to say the same about mine as well, better than me. Um, Bruff, look, been absolutely intriguing to talking to you. Thank you ever so much for joining us. Uh, for a little station like ours to get somebody of your calibre on the station is really uh, is really a feather in our cap, and I'm really, really grateful to you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. is a blue shoots up through the stony ground there's no room no space to win this is three valleys radio and you've been listening to in conversation with ad hopper and the reason that you had to care the traffic is stuck and you're not moving anywhere you thought you found a friend Stay tuned for all the local news and sport on Three Valleys Radio. A hand in return for grace. It's a beautiful day. Love this time